listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. last couple of weeks and where we'll be for this one and one more. Uh, We've been studying this little book, the second shortest in the Old Testament. I'm going to be honest, when I prepared the message for today, I I felt felt good about the the content. I felt good about the the outline and somewhere between then and now, I just don't feel as confident in it. And I'll tell you what, uh, what really has it got me uh, out of sorts a little bit is that as I started engaging with you or with, with, with you guys as you come in and engaging with you and just thinking about the content that we have for today, my mind was, these people don't need this. They're not, they're not here. They're not what, this is not where they're at. And I just got to be real honest with you. I think that's the enemy. I, I think what we're going to talk about today is, is where we all live, deep down where we don't want anybody to know it. The title of the talk for today in Haggai chapter, still in chapter number two, is Unrealistic Expectations. We're going to be dealing with something that I think the children of Israel were wrestling with at this time as they were rebuilding the temple. You'll recall, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, the book of Haggai is is the messages from God through the prophet of which we know very little about other than just his name. And he came to the people of Judah who had been allowed to return from captivity where they had been under Babylonian and then toward the end, Persian captivity. They had been allowed to return back to their homeland under God's sovereignty. That was his plan. In fact, he prophesied that through Jeremiah uh, decades and decades ago, that they would come back and they would rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And they were in the process of rebuilding that temple when they faced some opposition from outside, the neighboring peoples and some legal things that they stirred up. And and because of fear, they said, well, we probably ought to take a break from the building project. And they just left it kind of in flux. The the foundation was, was restored. The altar was rebuilt. But instead of going and continuing with the building project, they just set it aside and said, we're going to go do other things while this opposition kind of kind of dies down a little bit. 16 years later, still nothing had been done on the temple project. Now they had built some really fine houses of their own. They had restored beautiful dwelling places for themselves, but the project that God had brought them there to do had been left unfinished for about 16 years. And that's when he sent Haggai, the prophet, to spur the people back toward obedience And he brought them face to face with their disobedience and and, and he showed them how that their disobedience had led to negative consequences in their life and he invited them to return to work. And by grace of God, they did. 23 days after they heard the message, but they nevertheless restarted the building project. And then we heard the, the, the message last week that God sent to them, probably thinking ahead for them as they were rebuilding and said, hey guys, what does, it look, what does the temple look like now compared to how some of y'all remember it? 
And they're like, it's not ever going to be like it was. There's no way we'll be able to restore it to its, its place where Solomon had it before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and he says, and, and how do you feel about that? And well, we probably think this is a waste of time. And God reminded them that it's not about how they see it. It's about how he sees it. It's not about their human perspective, which was an incorrect perspective. You see, God's perspective was, I want the temple rebuilt. I want worship reestablished in Israel so that the people can return. They can reengage in worship as they prepare for what I know is next, the coming of Jesus, the coming of Messiah. And so don't think about it the way you look at it. Think about it the way I look at it. Oh, and by the way, you're right. It's not going to be like it was with Solomon. But it's also not going to be like it will be one of these days when its glory far outshines that that Solomon would have ever thought. So you keep working, you be strong, you keep building and know that I'm with you. And so today we come to about two months after that message in Haggai chapter number two, beginning verse number 10. It says on the 24th day of the ninth month, all right, so the last message was in the seventh month, so about, about 60 days later, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, so same amount of time, the sixth month, the seventh month, and now the ninth month, Haggai is coming with a message from the Lord. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet again. Now, God's not going to identify Zerubbabel and Joshua, the leader and the priest and then all the people. He's just going to continue on uh, by bringing their attention to something they should know about in the Mosaic law. And again, I think God is speaking to a situation in which they're living in right now. I think they're feeling and they're thinking and they're, they're wondering. And I think God is speaking into that situation. I don't have any way of knowing that for sure, but it just kind of seems like that's what God keeps doing. He keeps speaking into what they're already thinking, to what they're already wondering, and he gives them truth. Verse number 11, thus saith the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. The priests that were there in the part of the remnant, they were the ones responsible for interpreting the Mosaic law for the people, the, the, the writings of Moses, the covenant that God had established between he and them when they came out of Egypt. They were responsible for looking at the Mosaic law and then helping the people understand how they were to put it to practice. So God says, I, I, I want to bring your attention to something and I want to ask the priests to answer a couple of questions. So God's going to use something out of the Mosaic law as an illustration. He's going to ask them a couple of questions and they're going to answer them. And it's all for illustration so that the people will be able to see what God sees about them. Okay. So here comes the first question. Ask the priests about the law. First, verse number 12. If someone carries holy meat... That's not barbecue, by the way, even though we think about holy. Well, certainly it's pulled pork if it's... No, that's not. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with, the, with, with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become 
holy. So see, God's asking a question related to something that he had established in Leviticus chapter number six, specifically Leviticus chapter number six, verses 24 through 30. It was about how the priest were to handle a sin offering. A sin offering, if you go back to Leviticus chapter number four, is what God prescribed for the people whenever they discovered that they had transgressed God's law and they had done so unintentionally. Oh man, I didn't realize that I had done that. Oh my goodness, I've defrauded my brother. I charged him more than I should. And man, that's a no-no. I've cheated him and I didn't realize it. I didn't mean to. God says, here's what I want you to do. And he established, you know, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was to address the sinfulness of God's people, but it wasn't a final addressing of the sinfulness. It was just a temporary thing to deal with God's uh, holiness while they were waiting on the thing that was going to bring about uh, total forgiveness. And we know who that is, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the sacrificial system was about addressing their sin as it came up. And so the sin offering was there for when I defrauded my brother or I did something I didn't intend to. And so what I was to do is I was going to take a bull from the herd and I was to bring it to the priest and they were to kill the bull and they were to take the, the, the bull's parts and they were to split it out on the altar. They would take some of the blood, they were to sprinkle it and they were to sprinkle it on the horns of the altar. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they were sprinkle it on you. And then they were to burn much of the offering. But then in Leviticus chapter number six, God prescribes how the priests were to take some of the meat from that offering and consume it themselves because that's what the priest lived off of was the the generosity of the people they're giving and then part of the sacrifices the priests were allowed to eat so in Leviticus chapter 6 God says here's what I want you to know when you sacrifice the sin offering that meat is set aside as holy it is holy unto the Lord and when you take that meat, anything that meat touches also becomes set apart to the Lord. So what God was doing was helping the priest to understand, look, when you eat this meat, I need you to understand this is sacred. You get to participate in it because you have been set apart as my representatives within the people, but you need to be very careful how you handle the meat that has been set aside, even though you have the right to eat it. And there were all kinds of uh, prescriptions that they had to follow. They, if they boiled the meat in an earthen vessel, it had to be broken. If they boiled it in a bronze vessel, then it had to be scrubbed out and rinsed with water. If it touched, uh, the, if the blood of that meat touched their garment, it had to be washed in a special place. So there was, there was an importance about something being set aside as unto the Lord, and they were to take very careful uh, attention to that. And so God's drawing their attention. He's like, okay, priest, I want to ask you a question. If meat that has been set apart as holy, because it's for a sin offering, if it's put over into a garment to be carried to where we're going to cook it, does that garment also become set aside unto the Lord? And the answer to that was yes, that was. That meat touched that garment. That garment also had to be handled in a very specific way. But God says, that's not what I'm asking. I put the meat in the garment, and then as I'm walking through, the garment touches something. Does that mean that that's holy? 
Basically, what God is saying is, does holiness transfer from one thing to another thing to another thing, like a sickness does in flu season? Does, is it communicable? I mean, does it communicate beyond its thing? The priests were to answer that, although I think the people knew full well what the answer was. And we see it right here in the verse. It says, the priest answered and said, No. So the answer to can holiness be transferred from this to this to this to this, the answer is no. God said, okay, got another question for you. Then Haggai said, this message from the Lord's got a second question. He's going to ask him about another law. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body... If they touch any of these, does it become unclean? Now God's drawing their attention to Leviticus chapter number 22. Leviticus chapter number 22 talks about if you as an individual were to touch, one of the things that were unclean in the, in the, the, with the people of Israel was a dead body. Now you say, well, what would they do when someone would die? Well, they would prepare the body and they would, they would bury the body and they would, and they would remember the person like they were unclean. That's right. They were ceremonially unclean and they weren't allowed to go and do certain things until a certain time period passed and until they washed themselves under the prescribed things that God had. Why? Because the things that are unclean have an effect on me. Now it was ceremonial. So it was, it had to do with worship. So God says, okay, so holiness doesn't transfer from thing to thing to thing to thing. But let me ask you this question. If someone is ceremonially unclean because they touch the unclean body or the, the dead body, now they are ceremonially unclean. If they touch other things, now does those things become unclean? So he's asking the reverse question. Does holiness transfer from this, this, this? No. What about uncleanliness? Does it transfer from this to this to this? And according to Leviticus 22, verses 4 through 6, the priest answered and said, it does. So holiness can't be transferred, but uncleanliness can, and it can multiply. Like I, t- I touch something unclean, then I touch you, and then you touch them, and then they touch, and then all of a sudden, just this snowball effect, all kinds of stuff becomes ceremonially unclean. You say, well, what is God asking these questions for? I think it's because of some things that they were thinking now three plus months into rebuilding, They're three months plus back into the project that God had called them to. And God had said, you know what? I had pulled my hand back of blessing from you. And you you recognize that, right? So don't you think it would be smart to to get back on track and, and do what I told you to do? And yeah, we think so. And now they're about three months into it. And I think they're thinking and wondering and considering some things that God now steps into before they even ask and say, well, let me ask you some questions so that I can put your mind at ease on some things that I believe you're considering. That's where we pick up in verse number 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is, so what is? The fact that holiness can't be transferred, but uncleanliness can, and it snowballs, and it affects, it's got this trickle effect that it just multiplies on top of 
So it is with this people and this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer here is unclean. I think what God is speaking into are some unrealistic expectations of the people. First of all, I think that in their minds, they don't recognize how impossible it is for them to pursue godliness and pursue disobedience at the same time. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm getting at. There's no reason to think that the people for the 16 years were not going and offering sacrifices on the altar that had been rebuilt because they built the altar and they they celebrated some feast and they reestablished the sacrificial system and then they put the building project on hold, but you could still worship at the altar. So there's no reason to think that while they were off doing their own thing, instead of the thing God had called them to do, they were still coming and exercising those religious rituals of sacrifice for this whole 16 years. Probably celebrated the feasts, probably came back and did, did the, the Passover and with the families and all in, the, in their own new houses. And they did all that, probably did all of those things. And now what God is saying is, is I need to remind you, I need you to, because I think, well, God knows. I think what God is doing is addressing something in their mind that begins with the fact that they didn't realize you can't do both. You can't pursue godliness and run the track of disobedience at the same time. You can only go one way. You can't be two places at one time. I think God's bringing that to their attention. And and then he says, now consider from this day onward. Now, this word here, this Hebrew word is translated onward. It can either mean looking forward or looking backwards. Context determines whether you take it as do we look forward, do we look backward, but it's translated onward. And I think you're going to hear that based on the context that what God is doing is drawing their attention backward. All right, so this word's going to come up twice. And I think he's pointing, now, from this day, now I want you to think about from today onward behind you. I want you to look behind you and think. Now then consider from this day backward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, from this day back to when before we even started rebuilding like I asked you to, how did you fare, verse 16? How was it? Now you go, well, Pastor Kevin, I was here for the first sermon on Haggai, and didn't he already bring this up to them? He did. He's bringing it up again. He's got the prerogative to do that. He's, it's okay when he decides to do that. So he said, I want you to think back. Now think back before you were obedient. How were things going for you? How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. You, you, you thought you had gathered up 20, and when you got there and started counting, you're like, wait a minute, I thought there was more than this. I only got 10. Where did the other 10 go? You, you remember that? You remember how things were back then? When one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. You're like, well, yeah, I thought we pressed out 50, and I get to the barrel, and it seemed like there, were, there was more. I just don't, I don't know. Folks weren't eating up the, the grain. Folks weren't drinking up the wine. It just wasn't what they thought it was. Verse number 17 says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet, 
you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Now consider verse number 18. Consider from this day, I think backward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. And then he asks this question, verse number 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. I think God's saying, remember back before you obeyed me? You remember how you thought you had, but then you ended up not? And I did that. Why did I do that? Because of your disobedience. I pulled back my blessing on your life because you were trying to, you were trying to, to pursue me and disobedience at the same time, and that doesn't work. In your disobedience, it actually messed up everything else you were trying to do. And all the sacrifices you were trying to, I didn't see or hear any of those because you were pursuing disobedience. So you remember that? Yeah. But now you also remember that from the day you started rebuilding, you remember how that things haven't just changed overnight? That's why I think that God is speaking into the things that they're feeling. So they're like three months into this building project and their, their wallets are still feeling a little lean. You know, their vats are still feeling a little low. Their, their records are still not what they thought. But now they're doing the thing that God had, had told them to do. And, and God, you said, if we'll obey you, that you'll bless us. And we're not, I think that's what they're thinking. And God is just bringing up the elephant in the room and saying, you know how now that uh, you don't really see those things transpiring now? And I think their answer is yes. This line of questioning seems to be God setting them down for an honest evaluation. How many of you ever been evaluated by a boss or a superior? You know, and you've sat down. I've, I've had some, some evaluations that I don't think were all that honest. I've had some friends who have been my bosses at times, and I've sat down at the evaluations, and they go, you know what? You're a ray of sunshine. Everything you touch turns to gold. We love having you here. Let me give you a raise. It'll be a quarter, but we love you, and we hope you never leave. I go, that's probably not very honest. Although my wife does say I'm a ray of sunshine. Y'all know that, ain't true. Because I'm not always a ray of sunshine, right? No. Honest evaluations hurt, but honest evaluations help. So when a boss sits you down, a superior sits you down and says, you know, we like having you here. We really do. We feel like you're a great asset. Um, you got some up moments and some down moments, okay? When it comes to dealing with uh, upset customers, we really need you to work on the smile because when they're upset, it kind of gets you triggered and you start taking it personally and almost always we have to step in and figure out, number one, why they're upset and now they're why they're upset with you because you took, okay. You do great with customers that are happy. They love you, but when folks come in upset, you need to work on that, and you need to work on this. And, and, and listen, here's another weak spot. And you know how an honest evaluation feels. You're sitting there going, okay, and you walk out of there thinking, they don't like me, and I probably ought to quit, and I'm no good. And that's not it at all. They're just being honest. We need that. 
And this is not even in my outline. You know what we need in the body? You know what iron on iron is in the body? It's being honest with one another. It's, it's being able to look at someone and going, hey, you know what? I, I'm, I'm up for your evaluation of me, but you know what? You gossip. You, you know what? You, you steal. And that ain't cool. We need that. And you go, no, we don't. Yes, we do. It'll make us mad. And we'll walk away from there, you judgmental. No, no, they're just being honest. I think that's what God's doing here. He's, I think he's addressing the scuttlebutt that's going around with the people going, it's been three months. When's the crops going to come back? I mean, we've been building. We've been getting up. We've been on time to the temple. We quit building our own houses so that we can do it. God, and we want to. And we understand how we were disobedient. But good grief, it's been six months. Or it's been three months. And it's gone. And we don't know. Is, was God kidding about the fact of him being with us and his spirit being in our midst? I think what God is showing them in these verses is that disobedience brings God's hand instead of his blessing and that disobedience made their worship unclean, which trickled into every aspect of their life. Trying to pursue God and pursue disobedience brought uncleanliness into their life and then it, it touched everything they touched. And I think he's trying to help them understand that, look, this isn't about you being under a hand of judgment and then now you make things right and then poof, everything goes back to the way it is supposed to be or the way we think it's supposed to be. That's, that's not how it works, y'all. I am with you. My spirit is in your midst, but you know what? Everything you've touched for the last 16 years has been unclean and has brought uncleanliness to the whole community. So I need you to understand that. The disobedience brought my hand instead of my blessing. The disobedience made your worship unclean. The disobedience brought consequences that have affected every aspect of your life, the trickle-down effect, and the consequences are hard and last longer than you expected them to and maybe think they should. unrealistic expectations that I get back on track and then all my problems go away. Though that's what I think so many Christians expect from God. We walk away from God. We do our own thing. We pursue my desires over his desires and, and we walk a long way down that road. And then he gives us a nudge and says, uh, hey, you, you going to keep pursuing you or are you going to pursue me? <sighs> You're right, Lord. And then we come and we get things right with God. And, and we do. We get things right with God. It's right with God. And then we expect that God's just going to sweep up all of the consequences of our pursuing disobedience. And I think in this little picture we have in Haggai is God saying you are right with me but you're being unrealistic in your expectations if you're thinking that I'm just going to do away with the consequences because those are real 
But I think the people were wondering, hey, we're doing the right thing now, God, so why hadn't you brought everything back up to speed? And God says, because consequences were big. That was a big ball you had rolling. And the consequential ball that I set rolling because of your disobedience has a, has a spin ratio. And uh, it'll, it'll calm down. It's about calm down, but it doesn't just stop on a... We think, we think about the picture of Jesus. Jesus is asleep in the storm, and the disciples are rowing, and they're doing, and they're going crazy, and then they finally shake Jesus. Jesus, don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care that we're going down? And Jesus is like, what? What's, what's happening? And he gets up, and he sees them, and they're all just going crazy. And Jesus goes, oh, good grief. And he stands up to the end of the boat, and he goes, be still. And according to that passage, like the, not only did the wind stop, but like the seas went from tumultuous to ski worthy thin you know what i'm saying it's like glass you know disciples were just like okay so we don't know about this guy now because how you do that and i think we expect for god to just stop it and then everything become can god do that yes he can is that his modus Operende, is that the way he normally operates? No. No. And I think he's reminding them and he's bringing it to their attention that look, yes, I'm with you. Yes, my spirit is with, but you're wondering if I've got my time off a little bit. And I'm just reminding you that uh, your disobedience was quite stark. The consequences were quite astounding. And they touched everything you touched. Choosing to obey doesn't stop the consequences from running its course. I think some Christians, maybe in the audience today, need to be reminded that when we walk away from God, when we pursue disobedience, like it's affecting more than just the thing, right? If I'm pursuing disobedience at work, if, if, if I'm engaged in something that just ain't right and we know it ain't right and we know that God's not for it, and we say, yeah, but that's a work thing. No, it's not. It affects every part of your life. It's going to affect your marriage. It's going to affect your relationships with one another. It's going to affect your parenting ability. You got problems at home. You're pursuing disobedience at home. Guess what? It's going to affect your other relationships. It's going to affect your work relationships. It's going to affect all kinds of aspects of your life. And we got to recognize that, look, when we get things right with God, we're right with God. He doesn't automatically stop those consequential balls from running their course. And we can have unrealistic expectations. God, I made this right with you. I made this right with her. Why are things still sour at work? Because the ball's still turning. You, you keep pursuing me and the ball will slow down, but don't think that I'm just going to stop all the consequences. What that should do is warn us as we think that we can somehow pursue God and pursue disobedience at the same time. You can't. How often did they come to the altar and offer sacrifices and think, I know we're not building the temple, but we're good with God. And God's like, I don't care what you're sacrificing. And First uh, Samuel 15, 22, I think it is, Saul tried that same thing. 
was being disobedient and then trying to, to uh, make a sacrifice. And God said through Samuel, look, I don't want your sacrifice. I want your obedience. The sacrifice doesn't trump disobedience. Disobedience affects everything. And I think so many Christians are counting on their religious ritual to counteract what is disobedience in their life. And I know this is not what God wants me to do. I know, I know that this is not the best thing, but I'm going to counterbalance that by making sure that I'm in church and that I give and that I'm a part of. So maybe that'll balance this stuff out. It don't work that way. You can't pursue him and pursue disobedience. Maybe it is. And I'm looking at you coming in the door this morning. I'm like, they're not pursuing disobedience, but here's the thing. I don't know your heart. I know your Sunday happy face. That's the thing. I know your Sunday happy face and I know your, hey, that's pastor happy face on other days of the week. And I know my life group's faces, I'm starting to learn them a little bit better. But most of the time I see you, it's happy everything's good face. And that's probably not true. So here's God's warning for for us when we pursue disobedience. The consequence ball catches speed and it's going to roll its course. So moving forward, now that we're walking in obedience, let's pursue that. Let's pursue obedience so that we might not have to deal with the consequence ball. But I think he also spoke some hope for us in this last part of verse number 19. He's like, it wasn't good before. And honestly, since you started obeying, it hadn't really picked up like you thought it would, has it? Look at verse number 19, the last part. Here's what God says. But from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will. I know you, you think I've been late. Your expectations were unrealistic. It's starting to slow. And I want you to understand. You're being obedient and I'm going to bless you. And and he did. He did bless them until they disobeyed again, right? And then he pulled his hands back and, and more often than not, they were living in disobedience all the way up through the time of Christ. He did bless them and then they disobeyed and he'd pull back. I really think that like he talked about the temple earlier in the second message about the former glory, I really think what God is saying is, from this day forward, I will bless you. It might not always show up like you think it is, but I will bless you. And then he goes on and he makes a statement about an individual in their community. We'll talk about that next week is why I think he's really referring to the, to the eternal blessings that are secure, his promises that are going to come to pass more than he is talking about their Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock blessing that they really would like to have more wheat than they had last week or last uh, gathering season. But God's promise gives us hope in that I am with you. You think I'm off. You think I'm not on time. You think things aren't turning out like they're supposed to, but I am with you. My spirit is in your midst and I will bless you. But I think that uh, for us in the New Testament who know more of the story, 
I think it's even better than what they heard is, okay, so it's going to be a lean, it's going to be lean for a little while. Okay, but you're going to bless us and, and you're with, yes, I'm with you. Okay, well, we'll quit expecting things that aren't realistic. We'll, we'll keep realizing that disobedience brings consequences and we don't like the consequences. So that's going to encourage us to pursue you instead of getting off track. But I think as New Testament believers in Christ, it's not just hope for unrealistic expectations. I think what Christ brings to us are unbelievable guarantees. Let me give you one, for instance. You know, we talked about the, the offering that the meat was taken and then it would if touch other meats and other parts of the meal and it would make it holy. And you remember how that, that holy didn't just trickle down and it touched the garment. And all. What Christ brings in Christ... What, what he brings is something completely different than the holiness of that sacrificed meat. You see, what Christ brings in his sacrifice, what God the Son does in his incarnation, putting on flesh so that he might live a holy life and be our substitute, our holy sacrificial substitute in our place and for our sin, what Jesus does for us is make righteous those who he redeems. So like that meat was sacrificed and, you know, whatever it touched, but then it just was set apart, and then it, but it was still tainted because then it could become unclean. But what Christ does in his death and resurrection is he brings righteousness to those he touches in redemption, even in his earthly ministry there were people that Jesus weren't allowed to touch. You remember the lepers were to cry out. What were they to cry out? Unclean. Why? Because if you touch them, then you become unclean. What did Jesus find a habit of doing? Finding those that were unclean and reaching out. And in the gasp of everyone, Jesus would reach out and touch them. And then what would happen when Jesus touched them? They became what? Clean. Still, in, in Jesus' day, the law was still don't touch a dead body. Why? Because that made you unclean. Not Jesus. When Jesus touched a dead body, what did that make the dead body? Alive. How cool is that? Because Jesus is the sacrifice that's better than all of those Old Testament sacrifices. Read Hebrews. It'll tell you that. What Jesus has come to do is, is be what none of those things could be. And they were only a picture of and they were temporary. But now what Jesus does is he brings righteousness to the unclean. And when by redemption we are touched by him... Through faith in his death and resurrection, he makes us righteous. He justifies us. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 tells us about that since we have been now justified by his blood. How awesome is that? Now then Paul had to, it's not there and I don't have any of it. So Paul had to clean this up, okay? Because Paul's like... I know what you're thinking. Now that you're justified, you know what that means? That means you can do whatever you want to do, right? Because now that you're clean, Paul goes, are you kidding me? That's how you want to utilize what Christ has given you? Come on. 
That's not what justification is for. That's not what righteousness is about. But look, some of us in the room have felt the consequence wheel get to spinning so fast that it does not slow down fast enough. In fact, we may be still looking at the consequence wheel, still turning, even though our obedience has been intact for months and maybe years and maybe decades, but we're still feeling, we're like, God, are are you mad with me? And I think what God does in Christ is says, oh, no, 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 I'm not mad with you. I'm delighted in you, my child, if you have by faith trusted Jesus. But yes, but God, the consequence wheel is turning. I know. And that is the result of sin. But you're right with me. If by faith you've trusted me. And that's what I got to believe. I got to believe there's probably some in the room today that know they've trusted Jesus as Savior but yet they're feeling like, you know what? I, I just, I, I don't, is God still mad at me? Cause the consequence, and I, I, I've come to him. I've confessed my sin. I, I, I've, I've made it right with him. I know Jesus is my savior. Has God pulled his hand back from me? N- no more than uh, a good father pulls his hand back from his child. And he may have to whip him or her. Cause every now and then a little girl needs a spanking too, I guess. I don't know. I don't have any, but. I hear they do from time to time. But that doesn't mean you don't love them. They're intact. And that's what Christ brings to those who have pursued disobedience. He brings righteousness. In Jesus, and here's the cool thing, in Jesus, even our consequences can be used by him for his glory in our life. Now, that's really good news, but it's also news that we've got to be real careful about. We don't want to say, well, then I'm going to go tear it up because I know God's going to take the mess that I leave behind me and make it good and make it glorious. That's Paul would tell you, same book. That's not what we're talking about. But when we find ourselves neck deep in disobedience, and we think there's never, this, this is always going to haunt me. This is always going to follow me. This is always going to taint me. In Jesus, he takes those circumstances and can build them into the story of our life. Let me back up. We'll build them into his story in our life if we'll allow him to. You say, how does he do that? Well, I think about Chuck Colson. Anybody remember Chuck Colson? Uh, well, sentenced to several, several years in prison because of his illegal activities during the, uh, the Watergate scandal, I believe it was, under President Nixon. Sent to prison. I mean, prison time, Chuck Colson. And yet God used his connection to prison to not only draw men and women incarcerated to him, but he's used that connection in countless other ways. So a part of the worst thing that ever happened in his life, God has used that for his glory. He can do that in anything we make a mess of. 
He's capable of doing that. We have got to remember that when we start writing folks off. Well, they did this and they did that or this happened in their life. Well, they'll never be used by God again. That's baloney. That ain't true. God takes our messes and if, he'll, if we'll let him, if, if we'll submit ourselves to him and what he says about our mess, then he will transform that mess and use it for his glory if we'll let him. That never means that we glory in what we did. That never means that we're proud about the thing we did that brought sadness and reproach to his name. But that means we look at it and we say, I want to show you this right here. This is a mess that I created. And I created that and, and that is ugly. But I want to tell you about my God who takes even those that are broken by that and will transform them because he did that in me. And, and I, I, want, I want everybody to know that that's not who I am, though that's what I was. Who I am is in Christ. And God will take that and even use opportunities to open doors for folks that have experienced that that will listen to you that won't ever listen to me because I've never experienced it. And God, what did you say? He works all things together for the good of those who love him. So that's hope that we have. We have hope, unbelievable guarantee that obedience is possible because of and through the Holy Spirit. I think about uh, Philippians 2 where it says that, uh, that, that, that he is working in us to, 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 to be and to do for his good pleasure. He's working in us to want him and to do. So God is the one producing the desire to obey. And, and then we hear about the Holy Spirit who produces fruit in our life in Galatians 5. We talks about the, the Spirit wants to produce in us the love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, long-suffering. So when, when we have the Holy Spirit within us, pursuing obedience is possible. Even if I've pursued a life of disobedience, if I know Jesus is Savior, I'm declared righteous. Even, even my consequences will be used for his glory if I let him. And, and it, it's possible to obey because I have the Holy Spirit within me who's working. If, if you're here today and you've been broken by disobedience, that's hope. And it's in Christ. We also have the hope when we pursue disobedience, the death and resurrection of Christ provides for our restoration through confession and repentance as we go along and we're followers of Jesus and we're made right and we stumble up. Are there consequences? Yes, that's the original principle. But, but can we get back on track? Yes. How? By confessing and repenting. There's a difference when we think about confessing. I heard a preacher on the radio this week talk about the difference between admitting your sin and confessing your sin. Here's what admitting our sin sounds like. I did it. Sorry, my bad. That's admitting your sin. That's just admitting your sin. Here's what confession sounds like. Confession sounds like this thing I did was wrong. It sounds like this thing I did is sin. It sounds like this thing I did hurt you. This thing I did needs forgiving. I'm so sorry for this thing I did. That's confession. That's repentance. That's realizing that your sin has put you out of sorts in fellowship with God 
And if we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9 says, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's hope. The last principle of hope, unbelievable guarantee, is that by keeping sin confessed is the key to the pursuit of obedience. Romans 6, 12 says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So what do we do? As sin comes into our life, what do we do? We confess it. We make it a habit to confess sin. Why? Because we want to pursue obedience. Why? Because Jesus has given us righteousness and we're his children and we want to follow him and obey him. But we certainly don't want the consequence ball to get to rolling. And so keeping sin confessed, you know what that does? That keeps my foot off the disobedience path. But if I let sin build up and build up and build up, what also builds up? The consequence ball, it's going to roll. So if I keep sin confessed, yes, there'll be a consequence, but maybe it will be more like the spin of the wheel of fortune that only goes around a couple of times. And we can keep moving. Hope. If you're broken today, there's hope. If you're broken because of disobedience today, there's hope. If if you've been obedient and are wondering why things aren't starting to change, there's hope. His name's Jesus, who brings righteousness to those who will confess him by faith who brings forgiveness to those who have been made righteous when they mess up, if they'll confess and repent. To bring the pursuit of obedience possible to those who are wondering, am I ever going to be able to keep on this track? It gives us the means by which to stay on track. I think what God brought the people of Judah on that day was a message of of hope. Honest evaluation, but hope. Hey, from this day forward, I'm going to bless you. You keep obeying. You keep trusting. You keep pursuing. I don't know what your need is today, but that same God is right ready to meet you right where you're at. If your arms are folded, not if your if your if the if the arms of your heart are folded, I'm just gonna keep doing this. Then God'll let that ball just keep on turning. That's not what He wants. He wants you to walk in freedom, Christian. Let's pursue that freedom that we have in Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son. God, I thank you that uh, that even when the answer is yes, I know, the consequence ball is turning longer than you want, we can bask in righteousness that Christ gives through redemption. We can rejoice in forgiveness that Christ brings when we confess. We can recognize your presence with us. 
God, we can know that uh, obedience is possible and that all this broken behind us in, in the way that only you can will be useful to you if we'll let you use it in your story of our life. Father, I pray for your children today, wherever they're at, that they will want nothing else but you. God, I pray for the one who's here today that may have never trusted Jesus as Savior. May they hear it plain and clear. They will never be able to obey you. They'll never be able to be good enough. They'll never be able to earn your favor. But you've provided a free gift of salvation. And his name is Jesus. Through his death and resurrection in their place, if by faith they'll trust him and him alone as the sacrifice for their sin, that you'll wash them clean. You'll wash them clean for what they'll never be able to do in their own strength. That you'll give them what they'll never be able to earn in their own ability. New life. A new identity. God, I pray that you will draw anyone who doesn't know Jesus to the place to say, God, I believe that Jesus died for me and I need him because I'm a sinner incapable of saving myself. God, I pray that you'll meet us where we are. You know where we are. And I ask that you'll encourage us as we move out of this place and look to pursue you in obedience trusting in your presence. We love you and we thank you. First in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say it.